This is Amanda Stern, and you're listening to Storybound. I'm reading two excerpts from my memoir, Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you'll get to hear Amanda Stern read an excerpt from her memoir, Little Panic, with music by Haley Lynn. to go home by myself. I'm taking the Fifth Avenue bus for the first time, alone. I know I'm old enough to do this. Eddie is 14 and he's been going to the East Village by himself, where bums set garbage cans on fire to get warm and cars are bombed out like there's a war on. But still, I'm afraid. I remind myself that I'm 12, twice as old now as Aton was the morning he disappeared. But what if the person who took him waits at all the bus stops? The news a few weeks ago said a man was arrested for luring some boys into a drainpipe. They found pictures in the drainpipe of little boys who look like Aton Pates. What if the drainpipe man is the person who took him? After they arrested him, they discovered he used to date Aton's babysitter. What is wrong with babysitters? My mom drew me a map, a big box square's home, and the grid-like streets that make up the distance between 8th Street and home look very short. When I get off at 8th Street, I just have to follow the drawing. Even though it pulls up mere feet in front of me, I scramble onto the M15 before it can leave without me. Gratefully, I flash my bus pass. You're going to 8th Street and 5th Avenue, right? I ask just to make absolutely sure. He nods, and I walk to the back where it's empty, worried because he didn't say yes. A nod could mean he wasn't listening. I watch Central Park fall away, the plaza, and FAO Schwartz. The wind is strong, and brown lunch bags roll down sidewalks past the fancy Fifth Avenue department stores, disappearing behind us. The backward tumbling reminds me of my own body when I'm trying to fall asleep. With a defeated exhale, the bus stops and lowers, like my grandma's electric bed. Leaves and napkins fly up from the sidewalk in circles. A plastic bag catches in the weave of a metal garbage can and thrashes against it, trying to escape, but it's caught, held hostage. My mother said the bus will drop me off at 5th Avenue and 8th Street. And all I have to do is walk straight, right through Washington Square Park. Easy peasy. Once we're at 14th Street, I realize I'm the only one on the bus. 
Marcy Klein was on a bus when she was kidnapped. I stand and check that we're going in the right direction. My breath is starting to thicken. But then the arch for the park's entrance comes into view and I calm down, ring the bell and stand near the door. But instead of stopping where he's supposed to on 8th Street, he turns left and keeps going away from the park. My colon spasms and a noose lassos around my neck. I feel the slip not tightening into the hollow of my throat. I can't get air. I am being kidnapped. I am being kidnapped. I start swallowing at the air to get some into my lungs, pulling whatever I can through my mouth and nostrils to keep me alive. Please let me off the bus. I will do anything you want. I will be nice to Holly. I will not think bad thoughts about other people. I will... Is he slowing down? He's slowing down. Oh, thank God, thank God, thank God. He stops, but the moment between stopping and opening the door feels like a lifetime. And I worry that he's changing his mind. And he's going to look in the rearview mirror, spit out an evil laugh, press the gas and steal me away. But then I hear the deep wheeze and the door accordions open. I fly out, entangled in relief and terror and having no idea where I am or how to get home. I don't know where the park is. I was paying attention only to being kidnapped, not to where the bus was going. The bus did something different from what my mom said it would do, and I can't adjust for that difference. I can stay true only to the directions as they are, and only from the place I'm supposed to be, not wherever I am. Maybe if I walk straight, I'll still hit the park. My mom is always right, so even though there was an error, she'll still be right. I walk straight, but the park does not appear, and the neighborhood starts feeling shady, and I become more lost. Now the fear that hit me blocks ago turns crippling. I turn and look behind me. What were buildings and sidewalks on my way here now look like shapes and textures. Windows are rectangles, two-dimensional drawings. I'm hit by an ominous, tumbling sense that I've fallen into some replica of reality, a world flattened into two dimensions. Colors are beige and muted and stretch into one another. As everything starts to double, I feel myself rise up above it all, vibrating. I'm lifting above the city like mist. All of a sudden, I know what's really going on. People are just game pieces being played on a city-sized board. Everything looks fake, like it's been illustrated. Even the bricks look drawn on. Roof shingles are rectangles darkened by charcoal. The cars look like paper cutouts and cracks in the sidewalk are drawn on by chalk. Everything is a farce. Nothing is true. Abruptly, I've seen life for what it is. We are all objects without meaning. The meaning comes only from the giant invisible hands that are playing their game with us. You are listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. And now we return from our break. 
an early fall chill. Someone is lowering the sun, and immediately I know my entire family has gone on without me, not noticing I'm even missing. I imagine my family doing things they don't even do, sitting around a campfire, laughing, reading aloud from a book, playing guitar, laughing at jokes, now that I'm gone. Kara's bracy grin, the boyish glint of Eddie's squinty laugh, the things I'll never see again. I walk fast toward the nearest store, determined to make them save me. The cool, sweeping mist of each big breath puffs in dragon blasts through the inside of me. They didn't have enough information to keep him in jail, so they let the drainpipe man go. Now I know that anyone who passes me could be the drainpipe man. Little kids dash zigzag in a burst down the street toward me. Little darting faces. Their carefree laughs, squinting eyes, uneven mouths, baby teeth, and crooked little chins look suddenly both ominous and in danger. I duck into Bolton's, where the women on staff wear white stockings and pleated blue skirts. I don't realize I'm crying until someone calls for tissues. They coddle me and give me a lollipop. When they talk baby talk, I realize they think I'm younger than I am. This is a common problem. Sometimes I wish I were still nine. Not the bad nine where Melissa and Baba died. When Aton disappeared. But the nine where people tried to protect me from the real world. Usually when people do find out I'm older than they thought, they gasp in disbelief and I feel like apologizing. I'm not being who they expected me to be. When my mom rushes in, she thanks the women who work there and I'm relieved she looks as worried as I feel. Out on the sidewalk, I expect her to ask someone where we are or hail a taxi, but instead, she walks down the block and there in front of us is the park. I, I don't understand. It was right there the entire time. I try to explain what the bus did and how hard I tried to follow her map. I wonder if your ambidexterity caused the problem, she says. It, it didn't, I say. I'll find you a tutor, she says, walking fast as we approach the park. I don't want a tutor. I just want someone to help me inside my body. If I can explain what happened, maybe she'll finally hear me, but I don't know the words. I, I got overwhelmed, I say. A tutor can help you with your problems following directions, she says. They can work with you after school. She clutches her purse to her chest, pulling me behind her. I have problems following directions? Maybe if someone walked the route with me from start to finish, then I'd know how to do it the right way, I say. I'll draw the map so it's clearer for you. I should have labeled the stores and restaurants and not just the streets, she says. I'll make the letters bigger. Maybe they were too small. I don't think that was the problem, I say. Can you walk faster, she says, her face pinched and drained of color. I hurry behind her, through the park, passing a guy on a unicycle juggling pins, a man blowing giant soap bubbles toward the little kids who chase them, a musician singing James Taylor songs, and my age kids dancing for change next to a blasting boombox. Those people don't seem scary, but I must be wrong. My mom pulls on my hand. 
There are so many things to fear in this world. I'm even starting to fear myself. I am a growing constellation of errors. I don't know what's wrong with me, only that something is. And it must be too shameful to divulge or so rare that even the doctors are stumped. Whatever the case, not knowing is making everything worse. Is there some truth about me? Is there some truth about myself no one will tell me? Whenever I ask, the answer is always the same. I have problems learning. When I push for more information, my mom gets flustered and says, I, I can't explain it. She's keeping something from me. I can tell. I try so hard to shake away the images, but I feel them coming. Trouble learning how to tell time, bad grades, failing tests, the ERB, Dr. Rivka, staying back a grade, the notes the other kids took, getting lost. My heart sinks at the realization of the absolute horrid truth. I'm dumb. The adults lied to me. My mom lied to me. I didn't stay back because I was little. I stayed back because I'm stupid. That's how I know that no matter how many tutors she hires or maps she makes, I won't get it right. I don't understand how to do things. Other people know facts that I don't. And not knowing, even things I never learned, is dumbness. Everyone else's brains have information my brain doesn't have. I don't want anyone to know this truth about me. It has to stay hidden. On top of being stupid, though, I know there's something else. The source of my worries that no one seems able to find. If the world discovers that I have a weird extra flaw on top of being stupid, who knows what grade they'll put me in? Who knows what will happen to me? Who I am is a secret I have to keep forever. As we rush home through Washington Square Park, I smell the hot dog carts, the pretzel stands, the fall pollen, new clothes, the faded perfume, and our fear. The sense that we're just a board game has stayed with me, and I feel like I know things about the world no one else does. The map is crumpled up and grimy in my hand. I'm crushing the very streets I'm racing through, even home. Every smell cements this one terrifying experience inside me. And the truth about myself I now understand. From now on, all perfect New York City fall evenings will forever call up in me this specific terror and an exquisite sadness every September for the rest of my life. Oh, 
Listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. And now we return from our break. Dougal Street, between Bleecker and Houston, a row of multicolored houses, dyed like Easter eggs, backs up to a matching row on Sullivan Street. In the middle is a secret garden, reachable only through the homes. Its cobblestone and grass stretch the length of the entire block. Almost 30 kids live here, and we think it's the greatest place on earth. My best friend Melissa lives here. Bob Dylan used to live here too, but he's long gone, and besides, I don't even know who that is. Still, people ring our doorbell and ask for him all the time. I say, he moved away, now goodbye to you, home invader. On the street side, we have an extra wide stoop, which we share with our next door neighbor. At night, the local bums, Siggy and Sasquatch, turn the stairs into beds. Unlike normal stoops, ours lead up to the street, not down sinking our house below the sidewalk. During the day, tourists duck down and peer through our kitchen window. We see their maps and wide, curious faces. Ten seconds later, our doorbell rings. Is this a restaurant? 
They crane their necks to look around me. Nope. I can tell they're trying to see into our secret garden, but I won't let them. What happens here? What happens here? What happens here? What happens here is a question that asks what we're hiding, as though being a family isn't good enough. I don't like disappointing people, so I say, I'm not allowed to tell, or you don't want to know. This way, they won't feel I failed them. They might be embarrassed by their question, but that's fine by me, since that's how I feel most of the time. Sometimes it's nice to have a break. Even when I want to lie and say, this is the headquarters of the members-only Evil Knievel fan club, or the Truant Officer School for Juvenile Delinquents. I don't, because then they'd want an explanation I don't have. People always expect right answers to their wrong questions. All that happens here is us, and we're not questions, and can't be answered. Who is it? Who is it? My mom, still in her nightgown, yells from her bedroom upstairs. I can tell from her voice she's talking on the phone. Beats me, I say, shutting the door on the Taurus, shoving my two sucking fingers into my mouth and hurrying back to her. The secret garden is where I'm not erased. Some people think I'm funny. The adults call me a character. Outside of Melissa, my favorite garden friends are Marcel and Margot, and although adults are always smacking my hands out of my mouth whenever I bite my fingernails, I like everyone. Some people fight, but mainly we tromp in and out of one another's houses, sharing toys, food, and moms. When I'm not cursing or teaching other people how to curse, I speak with a fake Russian accent or pretend I'm an old-timey spy. Once I cut Marcel's hair with pinking shears. We climb trees, read books on the branches, and rope swing our way down. We tap dance on the sandbox cover, circle the entire garden on the low-balance beam of bricks without touching the ground, play freeze tag and have chestnut and bottle rocket wars. We build igloos and we ice skate when snow freezes over in wintertime. In the fall, I peel apart the helicopter wings and stick them on the end of my nose. We set up ramps and ride our big wheels like they're scooters and jump daredevil style from one to the other. On the jungle gym swing, we lay the seesaw across the canvas seat and stand a kid on each end while someone turns us round and round until the ropes are twirled as tight as they can go. When you unspin, the colored houses, the trees and the fences, the sandbox and the cobblestone all swirl together, mixing up a fast new world in a brand new color. You can feel the air of that new world wash your face, and the tight sensations in your belly are from excitement nerves, not worry ones. I am always happy when my body remembers to feel things other than scared. There are garden rules and garden meetings and garden gossip and garden life. We're like a small town with traditions and holiday celebrations. On Halloween, we have a haunted house and our own parade with prizes. On Easter, we hunt for eggs in the bushes. On digging day, we plant grass and repaint the green benches and black gates. In winter, we have weekly Christmas caroling rehearsals in different living rooms. My mom throws her own Christmas party every year even though we're Jewish. On the garden side, houses are sun-bleached and worn, the color of faded vegetables. Ivy covers only a couple of house faces, and a lucky few have their own balcony. I take pictures of everything, 
to keep life permanent. Everyone shares the big garden, but the little garden is your own. Ours has a sour cherry tree. There's a cobblestone area for tables and chairs and a small rectangle of grass where you can plant flowers, if you like that sort of thing. Sometimes I set out a blanket in our little garden and bring snacks and a book and pretend the blanket is a raft and the grass is the ocean. I crank the crooked pole round and round and watch the awning open, imagining it's a sail. The dark green cover makes me feel safe. I shut my eyes and feel the raft bob over gentle waves and smell the salt water. In the middle of the ocean, I'm protected from the whole scary world. When I open my eyes, my house is still there. It never leaves me. When it rains, the maple leaves grow heavy and brush against the house like a bedtime back rub, taking care of us. It's a home sound, one that happens only here. In the mornings, we hear birds before humans. Light catches and holds in wide stripes on the wood-planked floors. Kara, Eddie, and I lie sleepily on a couch near the garden doors, listening to the country sounds in the middle of the city, letting the spill of the sun warm our faces. When I was a baby, we lived uptown with our mom and dad. Kara and Eddie remember that, but I don't. I only remember living here. I want to only ever live here, in my same house, always. The garden has legends like Dead Man Smith, who lives under the Lester's house and comes out only at night. But even with Dead Man Smith, it's not dangerous here. If time worked the way it does in the garden, I wouldn't have any problems telling it. When the high-pitched clamoring of small lungs first shrieks a hole in the weekday quiet, it's 3 p.m. The quick flick of the bell from Minnie Lester's wrist chiming Arthur and John to dinner is 6 p.m. When you wake up to voices and running, it's either the weekend or the summer. When I'm in the garden, I can always feel my mother. If I need her, I know where to find her. The brownstones protect us. Like uptown doormen, they guard us from murderers and intruders, keeping us safe inside our secret world. We're reminded of the outside only when the subway rolls its vibration under us. The world is scary on the street side of life. Even my mom thinks so. When people don't look right to her, she stiffens her body and rushes past. Her mouth set tight, her eyes propped wide and straight, holding back her blinks. When we walk through Washington Square Park, she clutches her purse to her chest, and she walks so fast, I have to run behind her to keep up. My dad tells us stories about people who go missing, and three days later, they find them dead. The news tells you what happens. The radio, too. People disappear without a trace and are found strangled in Boston. If you go on the subway, people push you onto the tracks and escape as the train splurts out your bloody guts. My mom's afraid of the subway, but Kara and Eddie still take it to school, even though they're only 11 and 9. When you're too famous, people come to your door and shoot you in the face. Who wants to grow up when there are so many ways to get killed? I ask my mom all the time if these things will happen to us, but she says, no, absolutely not. Things like that just don't happen to children, she says. That makes me feel better, but I still worry about what will happen to me when I grow up. My mom's a grown-up, and she's afraid of the world, too. 
I can tell. From my bedroom window, through my rainbow decal, I watch the days unfold into evenings on McDougal Street. Legs bent under me, I study the street side of things. The smoking adults, the kids practicing tricks on their skateboards, the church bell chimes, and wood cracks against a baseball in the Houston Street playground across the street, signaling the end of the day. Across the street is Cafe Dante, where the artists go, and next door to that is Joe's Restaurant, where Vito serves vodka to the grown-ups and Tony slides plates of fried zucchini piled high like green volcanoes. In the morning when we're walking to school and in the afternoon when we're returning, Vito stands outside and makes sure the St. Anthony's kids don't beat us up. Whenever I pass him, I yell out, no black guys yet, so he knows he's doing a good job. At Al's candy store, kids run in and out while teenage hoodlums shop for drug equipment at the head shop next door. Al sells Tootsie Rolls for a penny, and I load up on those, as well as Swedish fish, with the prize money I receive for finding my mom's lost things. She loses earrings, glasses, rings, to-do lists, books, and even the glass she was just drinking from, which is always right in front of her. She doesn't look for anything before she starts yelling out that something's missing. But if she did, I wouldn't have so much reward money right now. No one else in the house is as good at finding things as I am. When I'm searching, no area goes unexamined, except for at night, when I will not go down to the basement. Not even with Jimmy, my mom's boyfriend, whom I like because he lets me climb all over him, even when he's reading the newspaper. His kids, Holly, Daniel, and David, told me Norman Bates lives in our basement. Norman is a psycho who killed his mom, and I am not going to let him kill mine. He doesn't live there during the day, though. Sometimes in the evenings, we walk up 6th Avenue to Brentano's. None of us wear shoes, including my mom. We walk around the village barefoot, and sometimes people look at us weird or yell, someone's gonna get hurt. On special occasions, we go to Canton Restaurant on Division Street, where the owner Eileen orders things for us that aren't on the menu. Lettuce wraps, sauteed Chinese broccoli, and salt and pepper shrimp. We're allowed to have whatever we want, including sugar, and Eddie and I always order orange soda. Afterwards, we walk down the block to the Chinese arcade and pose like strongmen in the photo booth and feed dimes to the dancing chicken. Sometimes we go to Gus's Pickles on Delancey Street, where they let us stick our dirty fingers into the cloudy barrels and pull out a sour that's too heavy for just one hand. When we want a snack, we go to Balducci's, where we stand at the open-mouthed crates and pop raw vegetables into our mouths, one fast sugar snap pea after another. On the way home, Kara and Eddie walk together, trading secrets they don't share with me. They do it because I'm the youngest. When I'm left out, I feel erased. We pass Jimmy Alcatraz, who sits outside the mafia store with the red curtain. Hi, Jimmy Alcatraz! We wave. Jimmy Alcatraz is the mafia. He keeps our neighborhood protected. Even though he knows our names, he and all the other Italians call the garden people the Americans. A few buildings over in the late afternoon, old Italian women in their nightgowns call down to kids below and lower metal pails filled with grubby loose change and warm fistfuls of crumpled dollar bills. See how many Lucys these'll get me. Melissa and I inflate with pride at their husky shouts, as though they've been waiting just for us. 
When we return, out of breath, and drop the change and goods back into the pail, Siggy appears out of nowhere and lunges his arm in. But he's never fast enough. Get your filthy mitts out of my pail, Siggy! Off he goes, scouring the curb for stubs the Italian women throw out their windows. Unlike Siggy, the other neighborhood homeless man, Sasquatch, never asks for anything. Siggy's gray hair is unraveling, and his nose is a fistful of warts. Sasquatch is a red-headed ogre, but they're our bums, and when they disappear for days at a time, we notice and worry. And when they die, we'll miss them. Every moment in my neighborhood is fun and sad at the same time. Sadness is my regular temperature, and joy is a lucky surprise, one I feel mainly in the garden. I wish I could feel something else, something better. Even now, sitting on my own bed, safe at home, the soothing sensation of my house rectangled around me, I feel the spot in me where homesickness fills. Even when Melissa is here, I am always sad for something, but I never know for what. Ordinary things like the dimming sun, lowering lights, the fresh spray of stars, or the first smell inside a new season's breeze, fill me with grief, oppressing dread, although I can never figure out what I'm mourning. Even when there is nothing to feel afraid of, I feel a fear, like something very terrible is about to happen. My chest and stomach fill with butterflies. A heat presses up under my skin and my body vibrates like someone's drawing chaotic black and white scribble and won't stop. I feel like this almost all the time. I wish the sky, the timer that sets the world, that sets the days and hours and weeks, that sets you and everyone I know, didn't unset me. Every day when the sun starts to lower and the colors thicken the sky, my chest clogs. When the pink smears its sadness across the sun's cheek, that same pink sadness streaks in me. The church bells chime, one, then two, all the way to the chime of now. The clouds smell like smoke, firewood burning. The bells chime and the sun dies. It dies every day, and the chimes tell the whole world why. I want to feel safe, but I don't know how. One day, I'll have to live on the street side of life. On the garden side, we look after one another, making sure that all the children are here, that no one is missing or lost. We have each other's backs. I wish, I wish our secret garden were a real little town with its own bank and post office and school. Then maybe our father could live here and I wouldn't have to leave my mother in order to visit him, in order to do anything. If only this were the entire world. If only the garden could hold us all. This story was an excerpt written and performed by Amanda Stern from her memoir, Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life. 
please go follow Amanda Stern on her podcast, Bookable, where she takes a deep dive with authors talking about their books. Or like how AARP Magazine refers to it, it's like listening to a really delicious night of live theater for readers. You can subscribe to Bookable wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. The song featured in this episode, titled Blue Skies, was written by Haley Lynn. You can find this song on her Bandcamp site. Just search for Haley Lynn. That's H-A-Y-L-E-Y. Or you can look her up at HaleyLynnMusic.com. Thank you to Bue Friedlander of Loud Tree Media, and thank you to Grand Central Publishing, as well as Tim Carplus for mixing this episode. And while you're still here, you can go check out Shane Milner's original comic for this episode. Shane works really hard on choosing the right excerpt and capturing the feel of each story. You can find the comics on our Instagram and Twitter at StoryBoundPod. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. This show's theme was developed by Grain Table, and thank you to Modestus Mancus for this outro sample. You want to tell us what you think of the show? Well, you can find us on Twitter at StoryboundPod, or you can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Next week, you'll hear an original story by Yah Jesse. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.